With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Okay, welcome everyone to Tando Radio Show, brought to you by Black Talk Radio Network. It's your boy David Wren, a.k.a. Dave from L.A. Just want to thank you all for chiming in and checking out Tando Radio Show and Black Talk Radio Network. I'm going to tell you, uh, it's a blessing to have your own media that's for your people, that's by your people, and it's about your people. This is so, so important, and I'm, I, I really, really want to thank Scotty and Black... Black Talk Radio Network, all the programmers, all the shows that are there, keep doing what you're doing. It's so needed. You know, it's we can't turn around now, even though we know that we don't get the funding nor have the resources that other mainstream media has because they per- perpetuate the overall uh, agenda of the few and those that manipulate the system for their gain. And of course, we know them as the slave owners and the controllers of resources. So, hey, everyone, please continue to support Black Talk Radio Network. This is paramount. I mean, paramount, especially in these times, because, you know, here at Black Talk Radio Network, we're not going to tell you what what the mainstream media is going to give you. We're going to give you, we're going to search out uh, on our own and try to find what's going on and bring it to you in a way that you can benefit from it and you can be informed by it so that we can be ready for whatever it is that's coming because there's a much, much, much that is coming. So please continue to support uh, Black Talk Radio Network. Also go to Tando Radio Show on Facebook. Check us out there. Some of the articles we posted, some of the things we have there, very, very good stuff now. One of the things I want to talk about uh, before we get started is on Tando, I just posted something, um, the food crisis that's in Venezuela. This is a great firsthand report of what's going on in Venezuela. This is why Black Talk Radio Network is so important. This is why Tando Radio Show uh, is so important because we bring you things that mainstream media will not cover. And just wanted to put in there the food crisis that's in Venezuela. 
Now, let me say this. What you're seeing in Venezuela, what you've seen in Greece uh, that we carried here at Black Talk Radio Network, what you've seen in Cyprus, which we carried here at Black Talk Radio Network, what you've seen in Bosnia that we've carried here at Black Talk Radio Network, what you've seen in, in all parts of the world that we've talked about and displayed for you guys, this is something that can happen here in the United States very quickly, very, very quickly. The food crisis in Venezuela, please do not look at that and think that that is something that couldn't happen here because it can't. And yesterday I had, had asked, if you would, next time you're at the grocery store, take a look in the back and see what's there. It's nothing. Take a look at the shelves uh, where the fruits and vegetables are and look what they're, the, the fruits and vegetables that you see, look what's under them. Nothing at all. It's basically the supermarket has out on display everything that it has. And this is very, very telling. Very telling. All it takes is one interruption of the, of the chain, of the commerce chain, one major event, and food will be scarce in the area, in a state, or in the whole uh, hemisphere of, of the country, or the whole country in itself. Within the matter of hours, within the matter of hours, because there's nothing that's there. And what Venezuela is experiencing is hyperinflation, and this is something that can happen here, and it will happen here at the rate that we're going. It's unavoidable. We are not going to get, uh, we are not going to have this escape us. What you see here in Venezuela is going to happen now. We bring this to you so that you can get prepared for it before it happens. And this stuff is happening quickly. And you'll be surprised at the speed at which things can deteriorate in this country. You know, we have social media. We have uh, the Internet. We have uh, fiber optics. That's how fast things can go from being calm, being without uh, any fro problems or interruptions to it being a total chaotic, unsustainable environment very quickly, very, very quickly. So I would definitely want to, uh, would ask, uh, for everyone that's listening to Black Talk Radio Network to check out the food crisis in Venezuela. This is a prelude to what's going to be happening here. I feel very comfortable in saying that. And it's not a matter of if, it's not even a matter of when anymore. It's a matter of how quickly now. How quickly. And which day will it be? Because it's going to be a day relatively soon. So check out that. Also, I have a precious metals class that I teach. Uh, we're going to start a new class on Friday. Um, if you're interested in that, definitely get involved in it. It's a, uh, it's $400, um, and, and what happens there is that I will teach you how to gain interest off of precious metals physical holdings. I will teach you how to leverage it. We'll teach you the history. We'll teach you um, um, how to use it in the future, and we'll teach you the history and the intrinsical value of it. You may say, well, why is that important? It's, it's important because that's God's money. And is the primary reason why we're enslaved in this country today. And anyone that doesn't know that, 
is because they neither know economy nor history. Because if you knew economics and if you knew history, that would not be a statement that would be foreign or, or unbeknowing to you. It would be confirmation. And this is so important. And, and until we understand and get back to our ancestral ties to real money, the ties that we have to cash will continue. And that is a burden, a beast of burden against our people. And that will continue because cash can be created by the printing press and digitally to steal your purchasing power and to steal the energy of your labor of the past. Why is energy more important, so important? Energy is more important than time because energy is the essence of life while time is nothing more than a manipulation of it held by man. They fool us every which way. Pretty much everything that you've ever been taught and told has been a lie. Time for us to get back to the truth. Our ancestral truth, our spiritual truth, and our individual sanctity. So, we're teaching, uh, teaching a precious metal class on Friday. Uh, it's a well worth it class. You will be happy that you, you've taken it. Uh, we'll teach you how to protect yourself, how to hedge yourself, and how to seize the opportunities that will come when this economy starts to con further deteriorate until uh, it will be reminiscence of Venezuela, food crisis, the L.A. riots, all on steroids, all on steroids. And but but beyond that is going to be some great opportunities that you need not fear, but just be prepared for. Because believe me, the people that aren't prepared will be surrendering and selling the few things that they have of value because most people don't really have much of value because we're consumers and we buy things that are not valuable. We buy things that are fashionable. And those things that are still valuable, the people that have them will have to give them up in order so that they can now not be in the same predicament as some of the people that's in Venezuela. So they won't have to fight the crowds and the mobs for the food and, and everything else. There are going to be people that are going to do very well, but you have to position yourself before it happens. You can't go out on a rough seas on a, on a ship or a boat and not prepare the rough seas in the calm of the sea. If you're preparing your boat for the rough seas while the rough seas have hit you, you're already sunk. You've already taken on more water than which you can bail. So we want to prevent you from doing that. If you're interested in the precious metals class, and you should, if they, believe me, you will be so glad that you've taken the class. Uh, you can give me a call at 951-790-8330, or you can text me there. And I will definitely get back with you and let you know what time we're going to have the class. It's going to be at 6 o'clock after Tando, uh, one hour after Tando radio show on Friday uh, is when we'll have the Precious Metals class. So get in front of it, get into it, and then learn how to purchase and start purchasing, acquire uh, physical silver and gold. I could also help you with that. But do not, let me tell you, it's important that you take the class because if you don't take the class, you will not know how to leverage this appropriately. 
they will take the precious metals from you very easily, very easily. And that's what you don't want. You want to be able to accumulate the precious metals at very, very low price points in which, and I teach you how to acquire them for far less than what everyone else um, does. So definitely, if you're interested in that, reach out to me. Uh, you can text me, 951-790-8330. Okay, let's get into today's today's show. Is going to We're going to be talking about the continuous deterioration of the economic, of the economy. But just before we do that, there's also another uh, article I would want you to check out is that the five na- Navy ships are op- five Chinese Navy, excuse me, five Chinese Navy ships are operating in the Bering Strait off the Alaskan coast. And the significance of that, it's, you know, it's, we are at the point of no return now. Now is where you need to be at the point of preparing. Okay? It's here. It's the truth. And it's going to continue. The U.S. and China are already engaged, engaged in a military uh, operation against each other where they've already started to create and take casualties and are actually shooting at each other. And it's only going to increase. So, be prepared for it all. So today's uh, show is going to be about the financial deterioration of the system. And there was a video that I wanted to bring to you um, known as the Five Horsemen. Very good. Um, has a lot of good information. And I bring to you these, you know, I, I like to bring some of these because I don't want you just to hear it from me. Um, I want you to hear different views and to, to see what's what's going on and then what we can do is we need to start to prepare for this as soon as if you haven't started preparing for it you need to if you have started to prepare for it we need to continue and then next uh the rest of this week i'm going to start to look at just specific things and believe me when you start preparing for a major event you're really preparing for any event so no matter what happens hurricane season is coming uh, you know, bad weather will be coming in the, in, in, you know, in the winter. And I'm going to tell you, last thing you want is a war during the winter. It compounds the pain. And this is what I believe that is definitely what they want. Because what does that do? That puts down a lot of any form of rebellion, uh, because of the overall climate itself. So, this is where we are, but um, let's jump to this video. Let's learn a little something. When we come back, we'll talk about and we'll f- uh, continue to prepare. So we're going to check out the Four Horsemen uh, video, and then we'll t- talk about it and talk about some of the other things that are happening in the world so that we will prepare. We, we will be prepared. So uh, we'll be, we're going to jump into the video, and definitely if you have any uh, questions or comments, after the video, uh, we will jump into that. We'd love to hear from you. A dialogue is much better than a, a monologue so that uh, we can talk to you and assist you as much as we possibly can or answer any questions or you can give advice um, to the listeners. And that number for that is 1-641-715-3660 and the access code is 54 90 
pound. And then put pound um, pound six. And then uh, star six, one, Dave. Two, I messed that up again. Star six <laughs> and one. What's that? Star six and one. Oh yeah, star six and one. And that will let Scotty know because I, I don't have the board up. Star six and one, and then we can see that you're there, and we'll definitely take your comment or question. Trust me, that'll be the last time I get it wrong. So, all right, everyone. So we're going to jump into this video. This is the four horses. People are awfully forgiving, uh, or they, they just don't understand, you know, what's been done to them. We are at uh, an epochal shift. Uh, we're at a point where the West could tip into complacent and quite well off redundancy, or we could play a decisive role in the future. What the banks did was reprehensible. That was why there was the outrage of the greed of the bankers when we gave them money that was supposed to uh, help them lend to others, but they decided to use that money to pay themselves bonuses. For what? For record losses? We are governed by corporations today, often by corporations that don't have very much interest in the United States of America. I don't know what happened, man. What happened to the United States? It went so far in the ditch. You know, what? at what moment? Did it all go bad? Was it disco? Was it was it Donna Summer? Is that what killed America? We are entering the age of consequence. A rapacious financial system. Escalating organized violence. Abject poverty for billions. And the looming environmental fallout are all converging at a time when governments religion and mainstream economists have stalled. War, conquest, famine, and death. The four horsemen are coming. This is not a film that sees conspiracies. It's not a film that mongers fear. It's not a film that blames bankers or politicians. It's a film that questions the systems we've created and suggests ways to reform them. Over centuries, systems have been subtly modified 
manipulated, and even corrupted, often to serve the interests of the few. We have continually accepted these changes, and because man can adjust to living under virtually any conditions, the trait that's enabled us to survive is the very trait that has suppressed us. Most societies have an elite, an elite tries to stay in power. And the ways they stay in power is not merely by controlling the means of production, to be Marxist, i.e. controlling the money, but by controlling the cognitive map, the way we think. And what really matters in that respect is not so much what is actually said in public, but is what is left undebated, unsaid. For centuries, gatekeepers have manipulated our cognitive map. But in 1989, a computer scientist by the name of Tim Berners-Lee implemented the first successful communication between an HTTP client and server. The World Wide Web was born. It has since unleashed a tsunami of instantly accessible, freely available information. Just as Gutenberg's printing press wrestled control of the cognitive map away from an ecclesiastical and royal elite, Today, the Internet is beginning to change governments, finance, and the media. We are at the cusp of change. But to enact it, we must first understand the things that have been left unsaid for so long. To do that, we need context from people who speak the truth in the face of collective delusion. Because to understand something is to be liberated from it. The end of World War II, we had 50% of the world's gross domestic product. We were making 54,000 airplanes a year, 7,000 ships, etc., etc. And we were the new Rome. And we recognized it and devised a power management scheme in the 1947 National Security Act to, we thought, manage it. And it worked fairly well during the Cold War. But we haven't done anything since, and I think that's another side of our um, inability to grasp the new world, if you will. Empires do not begin or end on a certain date, but they do end, and the West has not yet come to terms with its fading supremacy. At the end of every empire, under the guise of renewal, Tribes, armies, and organizations appear and devour the heritage of the former superpower, often from within. In his essay, The Fate of Empires, the soldier, diplomat, and traveler, Lieutenant General Sir John Glubb, analyzed the life cycle of empires. He found remarkable similarities between them all. An empire lasts about 250 years, or 10 generations, from the early pioneers to the final conspicuous consumers who become a burden on the state. Six ages define the lifespan of an empire. The age of pioneers. The age of conquests. The age of commerce. The age of affluence the age of intellect, 
ending with bread and circuses in the age of decadence. There are common features to every age of decadence. An undisciplined, overextended military. The conspicuous display of wealth. A massive disparity between rich and poor. A desire to live off a bloated state. And an obsession with sex. But perhaps the most notorious trait of all is the debasement of the currency. The United States and Great Britain both began on a gold or silver standard, long since abandoned. Rome was no different. So it started on a principle that was very sound, and it was on a silver standard. But as it corrupted further and further and further, the Roman denarius got to the point where it was basically a copper coin and they learned how to plate. It was washed in silver and in circulation the plating came off. And at the end, all the senators that really did at one time represent the people only were interested in representing how much wealth they could steal at the top. Great empire wealth always dazzles, but beneath the surface the unbridled desire for money, power and material possessions means that duty and public service are replaced by leaders and citizens who scramble for the spoils. Historically, all the signs of, of the demise of empire are beginning to develop. Some are more trenchant than others. This current financial and economic crisis, uh, that sort of thing always accompanies the demise of empire. The people of Rome were constantly being distracted by the gladiatorial events, and, and, and the, the politicians knew that they did this. Whenever there was unrest among the people, there was a huge event going on. And they, they created a new event with lots and lots of gladiators. And every day, we're doing that. That is, that is a common trait of declining empires. And so today in the United States, for example, you find a tremendous emphasis on all kinds of television programs that distract people from what's really going on. Sports is a big part of that, as it was in gladiator times. In essence, we've been lulled into a, uh, a lethargy, and we've accepted it. Just as our sports stars today earn vast sums, so did Roman charioteers. In the second century, one by the name of Gaius Apuleius Diocles amassed a fortune of 35 million sesterces in prize money, equivalent to several billion dollars today. Strangely, perhaps, there's another profession that is disproportionately hallowed as an empire declines. The Romans, the Ottomans and the Spanish all made celebrities of their chefs. And this again is typifying the end of an empire, where things were so great, we have this last oomph of momentum that we used to be great, and we felt great, and we don't feel it anymore. So everyone is out searching for it. Well, maybe it's in the best food, or the best clothes, or the best music, or the best movies, or a reality TV show, or another magazine. But you can never get enough of what you don't need. What you need is a strong moral conviction that is pervasive throughout the society and integrity reigns. There's a vast apathy. There's a vast amoralism, even a political nature to it. That is to say, there are vast numbers of people who don't give a damn. 
And so there's this, this uh, natural, I suppose, entropy. Any living organism, which an empire is, of course, um, over time dies. Um, question is, how does it die? Does it die the violent cascade of events, or does it die over a long period of time? The baby boomer generation were born into this age of decadence. Perhaps unwittingly, they've broken the unspoken intergenerational contract. Through unfettered consumerism, spiraling house prices, and a desire for eternal youth, the baby boomers have squandered future generations' inheritance. My generation, the generation right after my generation, um, I think we forgot that little phrase in the preamble to our Constitution, which says, and our posterity. All of a sudden it became us, period. The baby boom generation, which I'm a part of, has gone and done the biggest misallocation of capital in the history of mankind. We have had cheap oil or cheap energy is a better way to phrase it. We've had an abundance of ideas and we have chosen a system and perpetuated it that is probably one of the worst ways to use the blessings that were bestowed upon us. And we are going to pay a price for that. Human beings are inconsistent and paradoxical. We hope for peace and immortality, but continually invent new ways to destroy each other. We're capable of the kindest, most noble acts and the most horrific atrocities. Human beings are complex creatures. I mean, for example, we're capable right now, at this minute, of uh, acting in such a way as to make it likely, if not certain, that our grandchildren are going to face terrible disasters. And we're consciously acting to accelerate that likelihood, even though we all love our grandchildren. How can you be more contradictory than that? In spite of all the um, economic activities of last uh, uh, 50, 60, 70 years since the world, Second World War, and all the industrialization, uh, we have not yet managed to solve the problem of poverty, deprivation, hunger, malnutrition. Um, millions of people every night go to bed without food. And uh, millions of people are throwing away their food. Waste on the one hand, and poverty and deprivation and hunger on the other hand. Uh, uh, malnutrition on the one hand and obesity on the other hand. What kind of system have we created? Why, with such brilliant knowledge on the planet, are we still struggling to distribute wealth fairly? How has the human race developed a flawed system of government and economics that serves the few at the expense of the many? And with such poverty in an age of plenty, why have we not had the will to change such a vicious social structure? Greed is the fundamental uh, kind of ingredients for the immoral economy. Become, um, the problem is not uh, that uh, there is not enough in the world. People say that uh, there is a poverty, we have to create uh, more wealth. To, there is enough in the world for everybody's need, as Mahatma Gandhi said but not for anybody's greed. But is it just greed, or does it go deeper than that? 
Is the problem systemic? As a civilization, we've obviously we've obviously had a had a great run. Uh, we've done very well. We had the industrial revolution. Uh, we survived that. Uh, we've built a lot of modern uh, military technology. We've survived that uh, so far. We built a banking system, um, and, and we're still struggling. This guy works for the IMF. But, but, no, we've had a good run. It's kind of like when I was working on Wall Street for seven years. I had the experience uh, some people would have, let's say, working at a meat processing plant. They become vegetarian. You know, you work on Wall Street and you see how these banks like Goldman, J.P. Morgan, these other banks make money. When you, when you see money, it kind of makes you sick. Well, I think if the people knew what the banking system is up to, uh, as Henry Ford said, there would be a revolution tomorrow morning. Uh, the fact is most people think that what a bank does is lend you money that someone else has put in the bank previously. Um, but what a bank actually does, what a commercial bank does, uh, is to create money from nothing and then lend it to you at interest. If I do that, if I manufacture money in my own home, it's called counterfeiting. Uh, if an accountant creates money out of nothing in the company accounts, it's called cooking the books. But if a bank does it, it's perfectly legal. Uh, and so long as you allow fraud to be legalized, uh, then all kinds of problems are going to pop up in the economic system, which you can't do anything about. Private banks create money out of nothing and limited interest. Now, that sounds absurd. Uh, when I teach sophomores, you know, about money and banking and how banks, they never believe it. And so you have to go through it again and again. Yes, banks really do create money. They really do. Here's how it happens. And it's absurd. And they're right to, to, uh, doubt that that could possibly be what's really going on. But it is. Now, if the banking lobby is very strong, they're going to say, well, we don't want to change the system. We're making so much money out of it. What we have to do is, A, try and convince the people that it's their fault, um, that their wage claims are too high, and that's why we're having lots of inflation, or people are speculating on housing, and that's why house prices are going up. What they're not going to say is that this is happening because banks are creating money out of nothing and pumping it into the system, and that's why prices are going up. But how is it that we've ended up with a system in which banks have the power to create money? Since 1971, when President Nixon took the United States off what was left of the gold standard, the world has operated under a system of money known as fiat. The dollar, the pound, the euro are all government fiat currencies. Fiat is a Latin word meaning let it be so. It is the law that this government currency be money. Indeed, without that legal enforcement and the fact that we must pay taxes with this money, that dollar bill or that computer digit that represents a dollar would be pretty much meaningless. Only the government has the power to issue fiat money, but banks can create it through lending. 
Over the last 40 years since this system of fiat money became the global norm, the supply of money has grown exponentially. In fact, we've seen the greatest growth in the supply of money in history. But who benefits? Of course, those that have the power to issue money, governments and banks. Then, those companies and individuals that get this money early. They can spend it before the prices of the things they want to buy have risen to reflect the new money in circulation. In other words, they get services, products or assets cheap. But prices soon rise, so holders of assets such as houses or shares will then see gains without there necessarily being any improvements to the company or house in question. Often this can lead to speculative bubbles. But what about those at the bottom of the pyramid? Those on fixed wages or incomes? Those who live in remote areas? Or those with savings? By the time this newly created money has filtered down to them, the prices of the things they want to buy have increased. Their savings buy them less, however, and their wages remain largely unchanged. In some cases, they have to take on debt just to be able to afford the things they were previously able to buy. Which means they have to go back to the banks. In reality, this process of creating money only redistributes wealth from the bottom to the top of the pyramid. And thus that ever-increasing gulf between rich and poor gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, when, when you get off the gold standard and you go into a fiat money currency, combined with a fractional reserve banking system, you end up compounding debt faster than you can ever possibly produce to support that debt. So eventually you're going to find yourself back into debt slavery. And that's what's happened in the U.S. For every dollar of GDP, for example, in the U.S., it now it's also creates something like $5.50 worth of debt. Because it, this, is, this, is what, this is what happens when our economy flips over and basically capsizes. And of course the government solution now to, uh, to, to address all the problems is basically to create more debt. You can never get enough of a currency that doesn't work. You can print it till kingdom comes, but you can't print wealth and you can't get yourself out of debt by making more debt. If you could print wealth, Zimbabwe would be the largest, most prosperous country on the planet. We all know it doesn't work. Of the money in the world today, 97% of it is debt. The French philosopher Voltaire once said, all paper money eventually returns to its intrinsic value, zero. For three generations, the world watched the fight between capitalism and communism. But in the 1980s, the Russian economy started to collapse. The Soviet Union capitulated, and so-called capitalism reigned supreme. Before 1989, we had a battle between communism and the market. And in that battle, there was a sense of, let's not expose the flaws in the market economy. This is too important of a battle that you don't criticize our team while we're fighting their team. And their team, associated with authoritarianism, uh, with a failure to deliver well-being to their society, it was very clear that if you had to choose between these two, which was better? Communism failed first. For various reasons, I think it was inefficient, human rights, lack of respect, so forth. So 
capitalist West has been continuing in a triumphalist mode, thinking, ah, you know, our adversary has failed. That means we're doing everything right. Both systems are trying to do something which is fundamentally impossible, grow forever. And they're both going to fail. One failed first. Capitalism's going to fail and, you know, later. Or it's failing now. America right now is in a very interesting position because in the past two, three hundred years of its history, it's a culture and country which has almost always existed on the assumption that resources could be expanded. Um, if there was a problem, you always try to deal with it by expanding the pie. Go west, young man. Make the pie bigger so that everyone's got a bigger piece. Now it's facing a world where possibly resources are beginning to be more constrained and where it's going to have to divide up that pie and inflict pain on people. And that's something which it is not well prepared for. How has the country moved so far from the intentions of its founding fathers? How has the American dream become so distorted? Over the last 30 or 40 years, capitalism has taken this extreme form. And a lot of it goes back to the economist Milton Friedman from the Chicago School and Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and, and others buying into these policies that really encourage people to take on huge amounts of debt, encourage privatization, uh, smaller governments supposedly, although bigger militaries, so, so actually the government spending goes up. Deregulation, getting rid of rules that govern the people who run our institutions, especially our corporations. It's as though we suddenly are supposed to believe that the human beings who sit at the top of corporations uh, don't need to be regulated. They're some sort of gods. Milton Friedman, his protégés the Chicago Boys, and the neoclassical ideology beat the classical approach to economics and became the framework for what we today call capitalism. There are two main competing economic approaches which determine how we humans manage the world and distribute wealth. These are the classical and neoclassical schools. The classical school favors less government interference, more personal autonomy, and recognizes that humans cannot function without natural resources. The neoclassical school, which has a more dismissive view of natural resources, thinks government should rule the economy, solve social problems, and leave the free market to look after the distribution of wealth. The neoclassical school emerged around 100 years ago due to vested interests desire to protect their assets. This meant that neoclassical mathematical models and assumptions were divorced from reality. They're based on what ought to be instead of the classical models which are based on what actually is. It's these neoclassical models which favor large corporations that have been used to legitimize the financialization of the global economy. Championed by Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, neoclassical economics still dominates policy-making today. The uh, Reagan revolution, as we call it in those days, obviously the Reagan-Thatcher revolution, think about it more globally, was a big change in power structure and a big transfer of opportunity and wealth. Uh, now, it wasn't, it's, not, it's not that the poor gave it to the rich. It was a transfer within the well-to-do, so that the financial sector in particular in the United States, for example, but also in the UK and some other places, became vastly more profitable. And wages in, in that sector went up a lot. I mean, we focus on bonuses, but it's also base salaries went up, overall compensation. So there's a transfer from the non-financial part of the economy to the financial part of the economy 
that actually is unprecedented as far as we can see in, in any of the available data to us. And I'm talking about all of recorded human history. In 1932, in the aftermath of America's great stock market crash, a piece of legislation was passed to protect society. The Glass-Steagall Act was introduced to separate ordinary high street banking from investment banking. Sixty-seven years later, in 1999, under the influence of Treasury Secretary Larry Summers and his predecessor Robert Rubin, President Bill Clinton repealed the Glass-Steagall Act. Once again, banks could take ordinary depositors' money and speculate with it on virtually anything they liked. Wall Street is, has become a very particular uh, type of casino. Uh, and it's unfortunately not the kind of casino uh, they have in Las Vegas, which is, you know, perfectly legitimate form of entertainment. Uh, it, it is a casino that has massive negative repercussions on the rest of society. So it's not just losing your money on a few wild nights. It's about the way in which those organizations lose their money, impacting the whole of society. Uh, leading to a massive loss of jobs. This unfettered gambling pushed the entire global financial system to near collapse, with balances and debt obligations larger than the GDP of entire countries. The banks had become too big to fail. The West was unprepared, and bankers met their reeling and disorientated governments. You have to bail us out. We need money. If you don't give us the money, the whole thing goes down. And what are you going to do with millions and tens of millions of people who have lost everything in their bank account? You you will have a revolution on your hands. So fork over the money. Borrow. Borrow the money. Create it out of nothing. And give it back to us. And give it to us. And, and, and so that we can face our, our problems and, uh, and not go under and, or otherwise. And this is what uh, Mr. Hank Paulson did in the U.S. Congress. He went there one day and he told them, well, look, we need 700 billion and we need it now or else. Is this system we call capitalism really capitalism? In a capitalist system, government is supposed to be small. But today, the state is more bloated and invasive than it's ever been. Individuals and companies are supposed to operate in a free market. Good enterprise is rewarded with profit, and flawed enterprise with failure. But during the 2008 banking crisis, the people saw the Western economic system divided in a way they were told could never happen. Socialism for the rich, capitalism for the poor. And in America, for example, the banks that got in trouble got bailed out by the government. That's socialism. And they, people are arguing against socialism in America, and yet it's probably the most socialist country in the world right now. Uh, we have a system which isn't even a proper capitalist system, uh, which people make mistakes that they don't get punished, uh, poor people make mistakes that they get punished. Yeah? Or even worse, that uh, they don't make any mistake and they are forced to yeah, that, uh, pay for the mistakes of the rich. When the taxpayer is footing the bill for the misplaced speculation of bankers, then suddenly, instead of the economy serving the human being, the human being is now in perpetual service to amoral financial organizations.
It was the head of the Federal Reserve Bank, Alan Greenspan, who after 9-11 slashed interest rates to encourage lending. Bankers needed new participants to keep cash flowing into a system that had become a global pyramid scheme. All this newly created money entered the housing market and created unprecedented inflation. House prices rose and rose. New mothers were forced back into the workplace to service huge home loans, and the Anglo-American dream became all about land speculation. The housing market in the West isn't about ownership. The housing market in the West, because it's the only way ordinary people can get ahead, and ordinary people can't get ahead but by wages, what we've created is a mass bubble economics around housing. So that sucks in a huge amount of capital, takes capital for genuine innovations in the economy and puts it into a speculative use that has no genuine productive outcome. It's interesting if you talk to people in Germany, for example, they don't see a connection between owning a piece of property and, and being inclined to be, towards being democratic. There's lots of people who rent their housing there and they're perfectly comfortable with that arrangement. But it is true that in somewhat different contexts, both Mr. Reagan and Mrs. Thatcher pushed for more people to own housing. And actually, this is part of the problem, because if you push people to buy housing before they're ready, and if, so if, you, if you push very dubious loans on them, and they don't understand what they get themselves into, you can have huge adverse repercussions, exactly what led to, in part, the subprime housing crisis in the United States. Uh, that's not anything to do with democracy, that's just a bad economic idea. The breakthrough that occurred around the year uh, 2000 in the United States was when bankers found out that the poor are honest. And uh, they realized that if you're poor, if you're not rich, uh, you have a different set of values. And you think that a debt is a debt, and it's something that has to be paid. And that people will try to pay the debts that they're stuck with, even if the debts are not valid, even if the debts uh, are much more than they expected, even if they really can't pay the debts. The lending and banking institutions... Uh, when they drew up contracts with interest rates, with flexible interest rates, I think they knew in the beginning that these problems were going to come back later on where folks weren't going to be able to afford the mortgages as the interest rates increased. It put a lot of people in situations where they were taking food out of refrigerators, taking kids out of higher education. They're not able to afford college anymore. And it is making a really, really bad situation worse. The banks engaged in what was a criminal conspiracy to charge more to the blacks and Hispanics. The banks got together, backed the Bush administration to block the state prosecutions of uh, racial lending in order to exploit and charge more to the minorities. These are loans which were made by one of the major lenders in the city and in this country, Wells Fargo, in which Wells Fargo targeted minority communities in the city uh, put borrowers into loans that they could not afford, put borrowers into loans um, that, that were of the subprime variety, therefore more expensive and less advantageous to the borrowers. Hiding predatory lending practices in the small print of complex financial products was only ever going to enrich one set of interests. Many of the communities in which African Americans live in the city were establishing momentum. There was development activity that was occurring. We were seeing signs of vitality in many of these communities. And the results of the Wells Fargo foreclosures and the subprime lending practices of that lender and others um, has significantly impaired that progress and, and brought it to a halt. They're not worrying about, they don't, they don't come in the heart of it. 
Like, you in the heart of it, so you see. They don't really see the struggle if they don't come in the heart of it. They stay on the outside of it. That's like looking at the cover of a book and seeing the outside of the seeing the outside of a book. But if you don't go inside the book, then you'll never know what the book about. So they're not worrying about nobody else but themselves. And I think it's wrong because if they come in the heart of it and they see it, they'll be willing to help. What happened in Baltimore is just one example of what is happening all around the world. One way to frame this injustice is by branding it a race issue. But when we look really closely, we can see that there is something at play here that transcends race. Profit. Not an accident, for instance, that we had the deregulation in our financial industry that was such a disaster. Uh, the lobbyists of the finance industry amount to five per congressperson. In other words, they pay, pay five people for every congressman to explain to them, persuade them, that they should pass legislation that is favorable to the financial industry. The poor people who are devastated don't have the money. They couldn't hire five per congressman. So the way our, our democracy works, it's an unlevel playing field. The financial sector has acquired enormous power, partly through political contributions, so buying favors, but mostly through ideological control, convincing people that finance is good, more finance is better, and unregulated finance without limit is best. And, and that is really the, the cornerstone of this, what we call in the United States, the Wall Street, Washington corridor. I mean, if people need any proof as to who's controlling Washington, when the bailout came after Lehman Brothers collapsed, 80% of the population was against the bailout. Notwithstanding that, the uh, Congress passed the bailout, just showing, in my view anyway, that it's really under the control of banking interests. It's not a reflection of good democracy when a company, a group of companies, an industry, says uh, our interests are more important than the national interest. How can that happen? Very easy. That's the role of campaign contributions, lobbying, and America's political structure. Uh, we have a flawed democracy. This is an advanced oligarchy in the sense that uh, its main mechanism of control, if you like, is through convincing people that you really need, for example, the six biggest banks in the United States in their particular, in the particular form they exist today with the very light level of regulation. And if you don't have them, if you try to change that, all kinds of awful things will happen. And this is not really blackmail. I mean, it sounds like blackmail, but they convince you it's not blackmail. It's just that's the way the world is. There's nothing you can do about it. Oh, my goodness, you just have to cooperate with them. It's very clever. The Fed is essentially the lobbyist for the commercial banking system. When you say you want to turn regulation over to the Fed, you're saying the financial sector and Wall Street should be self-regulated. And uh, the Wall Street has veto power over whoever is going to be the head of the Federal Reserve. As long as you give veto power over the regulators to Wall Street, as long as you pick the bank regulators from the banking industry itself, uh, you can forget any thought of uh, calling it regulation. It's deregulation, and to call it regulation instead of deregulation is using Orwellian doublethink. Democracy is government by the people. Plutocracy is government by the rich. In a typical plutocratic state, economic inequality is high, social mobility low, 
and because of continuous exploitation of the masses, workers find it nearly impossible to climb out of poverty. The equal voting rights movement in the early 20th century abolished a system where rich people had more votes than poor people. But today, lobbying has put pay to that and reduced the American political system to a mere clearinghouse for the concerns of the rich. The Goldman Sachs machine is one of using profits to buy influence in Washington to change laws to make it easier to make money on Wall Street to be used to buy influence in Washington. So it's a self-reinforcing malfeasance machine that uh, is continuing to grow as a parasite in the economy and continuing to kill the host. Famous for claiming it did God's work, Goldman Sachs is one of the most influential investment banks in the world. Its alumni often occupy positions of great influence in governments and central banks. In September 2008, barely a month before the stock market crash, Goldman, supposedly a pillar of the free market, changed its banking status from investment to commercial. This meant it was now eligible for state protection. Socialism for the rich, right there. Goldman Sachs are extremely efficient at what they do. Their task is to make money. Uh, they make bank robbers like Willie Sutton look like modest amateurs. Uh, they're huge bank robbers, but it's legal. The system is set up so that they can do it. In the recent years, they've been selling securities put together from mortgages that they knew were worthless. Uh, so they're selling these things to unwitting consumers, making a ton of money on it. Meanwhile, they're betting that they're going to fail because they know that it, what they're peddling is rotten. So they placed bets with the credit default swaps and other things with a huge insurance company, AIG, and that was insuring Goldman Sachs against the failure of the stuff they're peddling. During America's subprime collapse, Goldman traders Michael Swenson and Josh Birnbaum made a $4 billion profit by short-selling junk mortgages. Backed by Dan Sparks, internally Goldman Sachs called their position the big short and bet against their own clients. Senator Carl Levin called Goldman Sachs chief executive Lloyd Blankfein to a Senate subcommittee to testify under oath. Much has been said about the supposedly massive short Goldman Sachs had on the U.S. housing market. The fact is, we were not consistently or significantly net short the market in residential mortgage-related products in 2007 and 2008. We didn't have a massive short against the housing market, and we certainly did not bet against our clients. Riding the big short in 2007 made billions of dollars for Goldman. And so far, they've got away scot-free with this massive heist. So they're now back bigger than before, richer than before. Uh, biggest profits they've had in history, you know, huge bonuses. They're doing great. Uh, a, lot of what a lot of what they're doing has, in fact, probably maybe all of it, has almost nothing to do with the benefit of the economy. Can there be any objection to genuinely talented people earning big money if they bring something new and tangible to the world? If they take great personal risks with their own money and actually bring greater prosperity for all?
In a free market, if I have a brilliant idea that I can run an automobile on grass clippings, as an example, and I produce that car, my motivation might be to make money. But if the market says, my goodness, this is the greatest automobile ever invented by mankind, and I make a billion dollars, I've not only served myself, but I have served everyone else that needs transportation. And that is the brilliance of a free market, is that paradox, that you can serve yourself and simultaneously serve others. And that's what it's all about. But how many of the general public have achieved greater prosperity through a banker's bonus? It was against the holy backdrop of St. Paul's Cathedral in London that Goldman Sachs Vice Chairman and mouthpiece Lord Griffiths gave insight into how certain bankers really think. The devoted Christian defended extortionate bonuses. I'm not a person of despair, I'm a person of hope. And I think that we have to tolerate the inequality as a way to achieving greater prosperity and opportunity for all. The fundamental Christian view, and I would say of Islam as well, and certainly of Judaism, <clears throat> is that wealth is to be shared. Money has to be shared. You can't take it with you. And, and from that develops a whole lot of stuff about justice and the economy and so on. And we've lost that. and Instead, we've got people accumulating more and more and I just think it's, I just think it's disgusting that people have lost their homes, they lost their jobs, they can't pay their mortgages from bankers who made a big mistake and then paid enormous bonuses. I'm sorry, that is simply wrong. And I can't understand why we are not more vociferous about that. Uh, when rich people tell you that they specifically have to be rich, through these egregious rip-off mechanisms, uh, that's just self-serving propaganda and it should be disregarded. It is true that if you, when you organize human society, some people get ahead and some people struggle. That's a natural mechanism. Um, but saying, oh, we've got to have inequality, therefore Goldman Sachs must be organized along the following lines, that's a complete non-sequitur. At what juncture, at what point does morality enter into economic, uh, the economic calculus? In a way, uh, many people think that Adam Smith gave us a free pass, uh, uh, a way not to think about morality. Because what Adam Smith said was that individuals in pursuit of their self-interest are led as if by an invisible hand to the general well-being of society. Now, let me make it clear, Adam Smith didn't really say that. <laughs> that is to say, Adam Smith was very much aware that businesses, when they got together, conspired against the public interest, raised prices. He was aware of monopoly. He was aware of the importance of education that the private sector couldn't provide. So he himself was aware of all the limitations. But his latter-day descendants have forgotten all those caveats. Adam Smith was the godfather of classical economics. But since its publication, his work has been used as a political football financiers twisting his words to suit them. Lord Griffiths advocates ruthless individualism to push this idea that if bankers get rich, then we get rich too, through a process known as trickle-down economics, or horse and sparrow theory. If you feed the horse enough oats, 
some will pass through to the road for the sparrows. The idea is that extreme wealth concentrated on a small minority will eventually trickle down to everyone else. But it doesn't work. Because by the time the money reaches the people at the bottom of our money pyramid, it's lost its purchasing power. But the public are now confused as to why our political leaders have allowed this to happen and quite naturally now ask why. Because our political processes are badly flawed. They're badly flawed because of the dependence on lobbyists on campaign contributions. So that's why you know, my view and a view I think of a, a lot of people is that we have to restructure our political processes to give more voice to the ordinary citizen and less voice to, to, the, to the interest group, to the moneyed groups, to, to those who, who, who have taken such a large role in, in shaping our tax code, our regulatory regulations, and so forth. I stood on the front step of Colin Powell's house. And I look at him and say, what, what, what next, boss? And he says, what do you mean? And I said, what next? Where are you going next? When I write my book, I said, no, I know, I know you're going to write your book. But you're going to do that for the rest of your life. Where are you going next? He said, maybe a cabinet position. But first, but first, money. I said, money? He said, yeah, millions. That's the only way you can be a cabinet officer in the American government. Oh, wow. The Democrats and the Republicans are beholden to corporate interests. And until they become unbeholden to those corporate interests, we will never have a well-governed republic. The inherent inequity in our system of money, banking and politics has not just had consequences domestically, but also on a massive scale globally. Western leaders have presented their military campaign in Iraq, Afghanistan and Pakistan as a moral obligation. But are there other reasons for it? The first financial beneficiary of America's foreign policy is the military. In particular, those who supply it with arms and equipment. The military has won wars, but how successful has it been in its bigger aim to eradicate terrorism? The drone attacks not only failed, but they've created extra extremism. They've helped in radicalization 
of youth in the northwest frontier and also in certain parts of Punjab and Pakistan. And because time after time, and sometimes, you know, there's a feeling that America does this deliberately to destabilize Pakistan. I'm not so sure about that, but I certainly think those people who actually support this policy, every time you kill 10, the so-called terrorists, you create 500 more because they see the drone attacks as a, an attack on a sovereign state of Pakistan. If they really wanted to flush them out, there was no need for a huge military operation in Swat, causing the entire district to become internally displaced persons. The population of Swat is 1.8 million. There are 2.3 million refugees in the country. The whole district has been emptied. This wouldn't have been necessary if they had carried out a surgical commando operation to get the militant leaders. But they allowed them to escape, all of them. After the military, the next financial beneficiary are those who win the contracts to conduct the rebuilding process. In the West, people might even feel optimistic when they hear that the US is pumping tens of billions of newly created dollars into developing nations to build infrastructure. But often this too doesn't seem to achieve the publicized goals. Is there another reason we give these countries aid? We economic hitmen have created the world's first truly global empire and we've done it primarily without the military. We work many different ways, but perhaps the most common is that we'll take a third world country that has resources our corporations covet, like oil, and then arrange a huge loan to that country from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. However, the money never actually goes to the country. Instead, it goes to our own corporations to build infrastructure projects in that country, power plants, highways, industrial parks, things that benefit a few wealthy families in that country as well as our corporations, but don't help the majority of the people at all. They're too poor to buy electricity or drive cars on the highways. They don't have the skills to get jobs in industrial parks, but they're left holding a huge debt. Infrastructure, which is used heavy loans from the World Bank and IMF, and made from grants from uh, Western countries, they've all gone into benefiting the elite and the feudal classes. Uh, they have not benefited the people. A lot of money goes to these consultants and companies from the West who charge huge amounts of money and actually the real money on projects and on ordinary people is very limited. The masses have very little already. So those landlords who have the infrastructure and who are going to make money because of the infrastructure that is built through their roads, they will prosper. But the ones who don't have any resources, they've not had jobs, there isn't an economic activity for them in terms of manufacturing goods so they can sell and they can also prosper. When you don't have that, what do they do? They resort to joining the Taliban because they see the enemy coming in and taking away what little bit they have. President Obama, I understand, wants to invest $7.5 billion in Pakistan's infrastructure to alleviate poverty and, you know, take away all the divisions and all the anti 
American sentiment over here. Whatever his reasons are, we can do without it. In fact, it's the worst possible thing he can do. This kind of help is actually going to be a hindrance. It's just going to make matters worse. It will bring this contrived war and terror into our rural areas. How much of U.S. foreign policy is genuinely altruistic? And how much is it influenced by the banks and corporations that profit so tremendously from it? America's evangelism of democracy is riddled with contradictions, not least of which this idea of promoting democracy at the point of a gun or opposing regimes which are democratic but not in the way that America wants. So too, this idea that America has been promoting free market capitalism has also been riddled with contradictions because the reality is that American firms tend to make most money when countries are at the cusp of change, certainly American financial firms, and in a sense they want markets that are changing structurally but not too free and too um, transparent because they make money when markets are a bit opaque. Is it any wonder developed nations are fighting in underdeveloped countries when so many are making so much money out of it, without ever really having to face up to or even witness the consequences of their actions? So what if five million kids died in Africa because of debt last year? Uh, you know, I got a bonus of a million pounds and if I have that conversation, I've had it with some uh, uh, bankers who've you know been in the business a long time and um they listen politely they're very polite very charming and at the end they say well Tariq, it's lovely meeting you again and they go back to the office and do another loan deal for tanzania or something i've known a lot of terrorists quote unquote i've met them i've interviewed them for books i've known them since i was an economic kid and i've never met one who wanted to be a terrorist they all want to be with their families back on the farm they're driven to terrorism because they've lost the farm. It's been inundated with water from a hydroelectric project or with oil from oil derricks. Their farm's been destroyed. They can't make a living for their kids. Or in the case of the Somali pirates, their fishing waters have been destroyed. And that's why they've turned to this. It isn't because they want to be, be pirates or, or, or terrorists. Now, there may be a few crazy people. There are a few crazy people. People with nut, their nuts loose. There'll always be serial killers. There'll always be crazy people. Maybe Osama bin Laden is one of them. But they do not get a following unless there's a terrible injustice going on. And people are starving and they're deprived. And then they will follow these crazy people because they seem to offer an alternative if we want to do away with terrorism, if we want to have what we in the United States call homeland security, we've got to recognize that the whole planet is our homeland. What does the word terrorist actually mean? Many terrorists would sooner describe themselves as freedom fighters. Could it be that the charge of terrorism could just as easily be made against Western corporations, speculators, and policymakers? Uh, well, when we talk about terrorism, it means what they do to us, not what okay, we do exactly. to them. That's, uh, that's and okay. what they do to us can be pretty ugly, although it's, it's not even a fraction of what we do to them. I mean, take, say, 9-11. That was a pretty serious act of terrorism, maybe the worst single act of terrorism in history. But it could have been worse. I mean, suppose, for example, that Al-Qaeda had uh, bombed Washington, uh, bombed the White House. It killed the president, installed a harsh military dictatorship, 
I brought in a bunch of economists who uh, drove the economy into its worst disaster in history. Well, that would have been worse than 9-11. And I'm not making it up. It happened. What's called the first 9-11 in South America, namely in Chile. On the 11th of September 1973, the democratically elected Chilean president, Salvador Allende, was overthrown in a coup. A dictatorship under Augusto Pinochet was established that ruled Chile until 1990. There was the systematic suppression of all political dissidents. Thousands were imprisoned and murdered. Who was involved in that first 9-11? Uh, not hard to find them. Uh, right in uh, Washington and London and so on. But that's off the agenda. It doesn't count. There's a principle of ideology that we must never look at our own crimes. We should, on the other hand, uh, exult in the crimes of others and in our own nobility in opposing them. The root causes of so-called terrorism will not be solved by increasing economic inequality. If governments really are serious about combating terrorism, then they must start with real structural reform back home. As long hey, as banking empires chase infrastructure and debt deals in pursuit of profit, the West will con... Okay. One sec. All right, everyone. Um, you know, um, let this run a little longer because it's, it's a very, very good uh, documentary. Uh, one of the things that I would like to say is that John Perkins, one of the things he said that there are, will always be serial killers. And that's true. And all those serial killers become senators, congressmen, presidents, prime ministers, kings. That's who the serial killers are. And until we realize that, until we realize this whole fraudulent system has been in place to enslave humanity, and the system that we had is filled with ubiquitous fraud financially, Socially, religiously, culturally, and, and overall, globally as far as the, the ecosystem. And until we understand that and, and come to the truth, one of the things that was so important that was said in this documentary is that the... Banks know that the poor are honest and that they will pay their bill because they have an obligation, even if those bills, even if those obligations are fraudulent, the poor have a moral conviction to pay. This is because they've indoctrinated the poor to be the perfect slave. The big difference, you know, one of the things that for every carpenter, every problem looks as a nail and they use a hammer for it. For every military general, every problem looks as a threat and they have a bomb for it. And for every slave, every problem looks as if they need a petition to, to the government for a solution. While every free person looks as a problem as a momentary obstacle so they get back 
to their prosperity. And they solve the problem with the resources that they have. It's a huge difference in thinking. It's a huge difference in lifestyle. It's a huge difference in a person's spirit of decree and spirit of existence. At some point, we are going to have to stop being the perfect slave and stop participating in a financial, religious, social, and cultural paradigm that deprives us of our birthright. You hear me say that all the time. We're the only ones that pay for our birthright because we're the only ones that condone enslaving other human beings and other living things. We've grown into it, and until we realize that it's not the way in which life was designed to be, it was created by a manipulator, and we can no longer be condoning or aiding and abetting those that manipulate. And this is what we're going to continue to have. You will continue to have economic bust, you will continue to have famine, you will continue to have export, uh, the, where people will be exploited, you will continue to have enslavement, and you will continue to have the stresses and the mental illness that is rampant throughout the world because we're not living the way that we're supposed to live. We weren't, we're not living the way that we were created to live. We're living the way that we have compromised to live. That is the real problem. It has nothing to do with the sociopath and the psychopath. It has everything to do with the everyday person that continues to allow this to go on. There was the one sister that talked about the book and she said if they came down here and saw they would change and try to help. No, they wouldn't. The key is not for you to wait for them to come to look at the book the key is for you to reject the book. Don't open it and don't read it because it's filled with their magic, elaborate, and articulate words that will make you feel good and make you comfortable while it's taking your livelihood right from you. Their plan is not to trick you, but to make you believe. Don't allow them to establish your standard of living. This is where we are. And I hope that you were able to see that this system is being played out right here, right now. And guess what? They're going to put you on the other side of it. Why? Because they have to in order to keep the fraud going. In order to keep the game, in order to keep the casino open, they got to bring in new clients and have the old clients thrown out, pushed out, discarded, and to now be the bearers of the, of the overall system. And that new client is going to come out of a country Countries that are in the emerging economy, 
why they call it the emerging economy. If those economies are emerging, that means yours is declining. But guess what? You actually asked for it because there weren't very many people in this country that was that were ready to walk away from the system as long as it benefited them they would be right in it now this system is about to turn its leverage against you and when it does it's going to be just as brutal just as destructive just as murderous and depalling as it's been before they're repeating their decadence they're repeating the cycle everything is cyclical now it's time for the u.s to go to the back and to the bottom and this is why you've seen the changing of the laws this is why you've seen the banking system require just like in 2008 when goldman sachs had changed from investment banking to regular banking status so that they can receive bailout well right now the banking system is changing their overall position so that the united states could be totally in total receivership and economically decimated and they're going to do this been the plan they have no loyalty to people at all their loyalty is to profit their loyalty is even beyond profit their loyalty is to taking the life energy out of people and having that be the means in the ways of their life ways and means your way of life provides for their means of life they don't care about cash they don't care about profit they created the profit by creating an enslavement system known as currency. They don't care about that. They care about your energy, and they're taking it daily. Taking it daily, and they will continue to take it. As long as you play by their rules, they will rule. So we're getting ready to go to a commercial break. If you'd like to get in on the conversation, definitely give us a call. And when we come back, uh, we're going to look at some of the things that you that we need to do and how to play this because it is here and it is now. The key will be, will you be ready for it? 97% of the people will not be ready for it. And many of the people that listen will not be ready for it. The key is, will you be? And it may not take much to get ready for it. But it will take and require your action and your attention immediately so that you can get to the other side and change and stop this for once and for all. So listen, we're getting ready to take a, a commercial break. You listen to Tando Radio, brought to you by Black Talk Radio Network. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com.
All right, welcome back, everyone, to Tando Radio Show, brought to you by Black Talk Radio Network. We host David Wren, a.k.a. Dave from L.A., and we played a very good uh, documentary. Uh, I posted inside of Tando, no, known as The Four Horsemen. Would definitely suggest that you uh, continue uh, to to check out uh, the documentary. And let me tell you, they allow this type of information to come out for one reason and one reason only. Because they don't care if you know, because they know most people will do nothing about it, because they have them right where they want them to be. If the, if the, if the general public was a threat to them, they would have to be much more savvy. Because they dictate what institutions and what films come out. They could have easily had smashed this one. But they didn't do it because of this. They put it out so that it would just be a measure of entertainment for you and for you to develop a hardened heart against hearing what's really happening. And when you hear what's really happening and you do nothing about it, your heart becomes hard to it. Your resolve becomes softened. Your motivation and your action becomes null and void. This is exactly what they want because that person and those type of people are no threat to the system at all because they are very threatened against people that are willing to do something about it because just as the Wizard of Oz was written and hope you know what the story about the Wizard of Oz is the Wizard of Oz is a very shallow weak person that hides behind an elaborate theatrical veil and when Frank wrote the Wizard of Oz there was so much symbolism and messages in it for the everyday person to pick up and the story of the Wizard of Oz was about people that had something that thought that they didn't have it because why they were told that they didn't in order for them to get it, they had to go on a journey. They had to go through the trials and the tribulations and the economic crisis and the collapse and the displacement in order to find finally who they were. And this was what Frank was talking about and why he wrote this. And if you look at the symbolism in The Wizard of Oz, follow the yellow brick road. Did you know that the yellow brick road was gold? And there was a reason why he said follow the yellow brick road. Because it was a resource to get you to where you could be free and independent. Dorothy's original slippers were silver. They weren't ruby red like the, the, uh, the sequel. They were purposely moved from the ruby red because it was just too much. They they don't want you to know about the intrinsical value of silver so much that they hide it in plain sight and do everything to suppress it. But think about what Dorothy's silver shoes were able to do. It was able to get her back home. You've been displaced in the Wizard of Oz. And the only way that you're going to get home and free again is by controlling resources, primarily silver. 
because it's the only one that has the intrinsical value that can harness the energy of the sun. Energy is more important than anything else that you know about because anything without energy is no longer physically existing. It's energy. And if you're able to harness the energy of the sun, you will not need man for anything. Will not be able to control you. Will not be able to enslave you. Will not be able that you require to wear a watch to be on time. In a fictitious and fraudulent system of manipulation of energy. They use it through time. So now, think about the Wizard of Oz. There was the cowardly lion. The tin man. And the scarecrow. The cowardly lion wanted courage. The scarecrow wanted a brain. And the tin man wanted a heart. And Dorothy wanted to go home. And all four of them were told and were misrepresented and they were miseducated on what they really did have. They thought that they were cowards. They thought that they didn't have a brain. They thought that they didn't have a heart. And they thought they would never get back home. And what did they do? They had to go to the Emerald City to petition the Wizard of Oz to get them what they wanted. It's so, it's just like so many of us in this, in this country, particularly black people. We think we need to petition the Wizard of Oz for our freedom. And all that is is just elaborate theatrical play. They have no power other than the ones that we concede to them. They have no authority other than what we give them. So what happened when they went to the Emerald City? Why did they why did Frank name it the Emerald City? Because it was green. It represented the facade of cash that was really there to enslave. Then when they got to when they got to the Wizard of Oz and they found out who he was, they were all shocked. Because it wasn't really the, the wizard that was misplaced and out of line, it was them because they gave away their whole life, the value of their lives to someone else. They surrendered it. And because of that, the wizard lived many lives while the rest of the people had none at all. So once the curtain was pulled back, then they started to realize what the cowardly lion looked at his life and saw how much courage he did have. Because it was brought to his attention. Once they started to think and see clearly. Once they got out of that, that spell. Once they became awakened. And no longer became comatose and like the walking dead. Dorothy realized and said, the cowardly lion, you had courage and gave the example. The scarecrow, you had a brain and gave the example. 
And to the ten men, you had a heart and gave example. And all Dorothy had to do was to realize that for her to go home, she had, she already had the ability to get there. She just needed to act on it, just like the rest of them in The Wizard of Oz. This is one of the things that they don't want you to know. They keep telling you about different things and not giving you the explanation of them or the intention behind them. In order for us to ever become free, we need to stop petitioning, petitioning the Wizard of Oz. Never did they tell you about follow the yellow brick road was gold and the shoes, the silver shoes of Dorothy to get home, to get you back to where you were before you left, before you made a deal that made a pact with the devil, before that temptation was given into that affected the generation, before you would give up your sovereignty for false comfort, which we do daily. This is where we are. Now, what is it that we need to do? First of all, we can't use the same consciousness that created the problem. Albert Einstein said, in order to solve a problem, you can't use the same consciousness that created it. You have to think anew. Meaning that thinking anew has nothing to do with you uh, uh, coming up with a grand scheme. It means for you not to desire the same thing that those have, that created the problem. We can't want freedom and be willing to enslave anyone else by any means to do it. Because the only thing that's going to permeate and stand the test of time is the slavery will continue. We have to think anew. We can no longer want the pleasures and the comfort that this life has falsely provided because it's tainted and it's poisonous. And just like having a snake, a poisonous snake as a pet, you can feed it all you want, but one day it will bite you and it's venom will be introduced into your vein, into your bloodstream, because that's what the snake will do. That's who he is. Has to do it. So we cannot be like the manipulator. And that is something that you have never been introduced to, and that may sound like a utopia society. That's because that shows just how in-depth and just how embedded you are into this system of enslavement. I always like to say most people would love to have slaves, but they damn sure don't want to be one. Love having them, but don't want to be one. That's the system. That means that you're perfect for this system. But it has no loyalty to you. You know what, Brother so, Dave? You're hitting on some really good points, man. And, and if people really think about their their um how we, you were just talking about all this material things the comforts and whatnot and if they really knew the human suffering behind the world to prop up your standard of living 
you know, then you you might not you may decide well I can do with that without you know yeah I can do without because I don't want anybody suffering or dying so I can you know have this big screen TV or or you know this big gas guzzling car and whatnot so uh, uh yeah man we got to start thinking anew. We have to, you know what, and let me tell you, Scotty is not just saying this, because let me tell you, this is, this is Scotty's true heart, because when we first, uh, when CC had first introduced, uh, Tando to Scotty, and we said we was going to be talking about precious metals, you know, one of the first things that Scotty said was, wait a minute, where, where, where are you going to be getting the metals from? What is this tied to? Is, is this a tie to, to blood diamonds and everything else? And because this is what Scotty believes. This is who Scotty is, and, and this is exactly who we need to be. At what cost does these comforts? At what cost is it going to for me to have these comforts? Who else is suffering? Who's on the opposite side of this? And let me tell you something. What they love to tell you is that competition brings out the best in you. No, competition actually brings out the worst in you, because the desire to win supersedes the desire to work with and to assist and to share and to only take what's necessary. There's a big difference in, in the killing that man has in comparison to in the wild. The wild has for survival, man has for pleasure. You know, it's it's amazing how, you know, they try to now the, and they try to always legalize illegal and immoral acts. They try to say, hey, we need to have hunting in order to keep the, the rodent population or the deer population in check. But what they don't tell you is because they killed all the predators and they hunted all the predators away. Go look at any of the, the major, major, major sporting sort, like Bass Pro Shop. And you'll see all the predators on the wall as trophies. We kill for sport. And we kill for sport because that is what we've grown up to be. And we don't even realize how entertainment actually substantiates and validates and, 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 and actually makes those types of acts even stronger within us. From sports, us versus them. You got people talking about my team, and they've never even, they have no vested interest in the team. They become a fan, which is instead of saying the word fan, they need to say the whole thing out is a fanatic. A fan is never, never mentally stable. And this is what they want. This is why they, they, they have so much sport, and they try to keep, get you to compete. Because competition is actually the tool of the devil. Competing is the devil's lounge or the devil's bar to intoxicate you to be other than what you're supposed to be. I mean, that makes so much sense, Brother Day, because it automatically puts you in opposition to another human being. Yep. That's what it promotes. That's so true, Scotty. It puts you in opposition even to the point of killing. And it puts you in opposition with your own family. 
put you in opposition with your own self. How many of us ourselves? And, and because of this, now you wonder with the onslaught of drugs, pharmaceutical drugs, which are stored in your body, and then now you have the chemical dependency with the mental illness because of the, the, the imbalance. And now you have the perfect slave, people that are wanderers, the wandering Jews. You continue to wander. And this is the overall design and the plan. And we buy into this system because they have an elaborate theatrical uh, uh, stage. All the world is a stage from our TVs to our, our musicals. They actually take harmonic frequencies and turn them against us. They do it in our music. They do it in their music. They do it in the food. They've totally, totally have inundated us into being the perfect slave. And I'm going to tell you, it goes back a very long time, and it started with harmonic frequency. At some point, some of us are going to have to wake up and realize that, hey, no longer will I participate in a murderous system. No longer will I allow myself to so-called die of natural causes or to even make an environment where other people will die of natural causes because there are no natural causes, death, that we know of. Everyone that you know has been murdered. And because that's the system. And they're going to continue to, pu to push this through health care. They're going to continue to push this through the economic system from having collapses and, and the food uh, uh, actually weakening our, our immune systems and weakening our major organs so that when you do have stress, that's it. Everyone jumps off the deep end. So what is it that we need to do? We need to turn our back on the system. And the best and most effective and efficient way to do it is to peel back the, cur the, the curtain on, on the midget. That's a widget. That's, that's the, the, the well, I don't want to say midget, but on the Wizard of Oz and to see how small and how weak and fragile and how, how much of a manipulator we have to pull back the curtain. And that curtain is our own desires. We have to change what we desire. We have to change what our own agendas are, our own wants. We have to keep our wants in line with, with our needs. And our needs is for primarily for us as a collective species to resonate together. We have to become a class one society. You know, I had that conversation, Brother Dave, with my mom, because <clears throat> she's a Christian, 
And I mean, she's not brainwashed or anything like that, but there are some things that she does believe in practice that I'm right. trying to get her to to look at another way. But this prosperity preaching and, and this stuff about God, the creator want us to have a eight room mansion, even though we only got a family of three. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm I'm like, you know, mom, if I had a if I had five million dollars, I still would not build a mansion. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. <laughs> For what? So I could dust a bunch of empty rooms that I ain't gonna spend no time in? I was like, that's waste. That's waste. How about I build a house big enough for my family and then build another house for some of my other cousins and family up here? You know what I'm saying? Maybe even build yeah. this big old like like barracks type deal and all my family members that that's off somewhere else hey, and y'all ain't married. Come on, let come on, move in the barracks here up on family land. You know what I'm saying? So I, man, we want so much that you know to the point that. We just want stuff that ain't even, we don't need it. We don't need it because it's being programmed into us. What you need with an eight-room mansion and you got a family of three. Right. And you know what it is, Scotty? We want so much, we want so much that we're willing to enslave others to get it. That, because what does that do? Misery loves company. If they get, if they get the general population on that type of in that type of thinking and have those types of desire, then guess what? Their own manipulation of enslavement will go unchecked. And you know what? You said something that was so godly. You said that one of the things that I love about the great creator, God Almighty, is that God is not wasteful. And you said it right there. That's waste. That is a godly statement. So many of us have made our deal and wanted the world instead of having the paradise that God has created. And because we, a lot of people would say, Scotty, the opposite of that is that not, that's not wasteful. I'll take that. Ooh, there's so much I could do with that. In actuality, nothing that you can do with it, but it further to deteriorate your moral standard and your true connection with the great creator. It's We've been so misinformed and we've been indoctrinated and we've been actually inebriated in the wine of splendor that has caused the calcification of our moral conviction. And it's based in greed. It's never enough. Never, ever enough. So, one of the things that we definitely have to do is we need to turn our back on the system. But what I would say to you is get back to prepare for what's coming. And then as this comes, when you prepared, there are so many people that you can help because the opportunity to pull the curtain back on the wizard will come. Will you be there to pull the curtain? Because when you pull the curtain, you're actually pulling your curtain because the wizard is you. The Wizard of Oz is you. And that's the curtain that needs to be broken. Man, Scotty, brother, I thank you so much for everything. Uh, today is, is Wednesday, so definitely want to give uh, make way for the next show, the new Abolitionist Radio show. And listen, everyone, please continue to support Black Talk Radio Network. If you're interested in the Precious Metals class, 
uh, let me know. You can text me 951-790-8330. And also continue to watch, continue to prepare. The essentials first, food, water, uh, shelter, and protection. And, you know, part of the protection is the, the, the precious metals. And part of get, being able to, to acquire the food and water is the precious metals. And this is, you definitely need silver. You need silver in order to be able to purify water in case uh, water becomes um, non-potable for so many reasons. All it takes is for the power to go, go out. And guess what? You have rancid water. So I just would say to you all, continue to prepare, continue to listen to Tando, uh, continue to support Black Talk Radio Network. It's so necessary. It's so important because where else do you have the programming that is for you that where people that really do care about you and they don't want you to continue this overall slave in mentality and this slave agenda? So thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember, before you ask for a blessing, to be a blessing. And it's never goodbye. As always, I'll see you later, God willing. Much love and much respect. Until tomorrow, we'll see and talk to you then. Girl, you are rich, even with nothing. And you know tenderness With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.